You can go ahead and, and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Um, I just, I love that song we just sung, um, Solid Rock, and uh, just reminded of the strength and hope that we have um, in the rock of Jesus Christ. And uh, I just want to remind you that that song, those lyrics are drawn predominantly from the Gospels, from the Gospel of Matthew in particular, from the words of Jesus Christ himself, where Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 begins to describe uh, in the the famous Sermon on the Mount the difference between uh, wisdom and folly. And as he does that, he actually paints for us a picture. He tells a story, a parable of sorts, of a a wise person and a foolish person, and he describes the wise and the foolish person in in similar ways, with a similar kind of story of their lives, but there's a massive difference. Both of them build a house. It's representative, reflective of their life, and what they think is valuable, what they put their hopes in, but you see the, the the foolish person builds their house on sand, and the wise person builds their house on a rock. And, and you know the story. You're, you're familiar with it. I know you are, right? The storm comes, the rain falls, the floods come, and the person who built their house upon the rock, that house stands. It stands firm. But the person who built their house on the sand, the person who's identified as the fool in this picture, Their house, under the same pressure, under the same waves and rain and wind, the storm that's pounding against that house, it ends up collapsing, and and Jesus makes it clear, and great was its fall. He tells us this story to describe for us the massive difference between the wise and the foolish. In, In the words of Jesus, in the picture he paints, this difference is so massive, it's the difference between life and death. And when you read the the story that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 7, you need to ask this question, what's the difference really between these two men? Jesus makes it clear at the very beginning of this story. Here's what he says. According to Jesus, listen, the wise person is the one who hears these words of mine and does them. The fool is the person who above all else does not listen to the words of Jesus and refuses to do them. You see, the wise, according to Jesus, build their lives on the rock of God's word, and at the heart of the rock of God's word is the rock of Jesus Christ. The word of God is able, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3.15, to make us wise even unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that context, Paul is actually writing to Timothy, and he's speaking predominantly of the Old Testament scriptures. You see, he reminds us that all the scriptures point us to the rock of God's word and the rock of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament itself is filled with wisdom for living, and all wisdom ultimately points us to Jesus Christ, the power of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and the wisdom of God. And that's where we are headed this morning. This passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 draws out this difference between the wise and the foolish. It paints it in a startling contrast, much in the same way that Jesus does. It talks about the destruction of those who live in foolishness and the blessing that comes to those who live in wisdom. And throughout this passage, we see this contrast and we see the call for us to live lives, not of foolishness, but of wisdom. And so we're going to read it together and then we're going to march 
through it and pull it apart. Let's begin in verse 1. Here's what the preacher, Solomon, likely writes. He says this, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low places. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and, the one, excuse me, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility. And your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Though sloth, or through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter." Here we have strung together a group of Proverbs, Proverbs that in many ways seem disconnected but are actually linked together just through this common overarching umbrella, the contrast between the wise and the fool, the one who pursues foolishness and ends up imploding their life, a life of self-destruction versus the wise who end up with blessing and honor. What's really fascinating about this passage is that it's set really with the backdrop, again, of the political arena. Did you notice that? This talk of, of kings and servants or slaves. This has been a common theme for the preacher of Ecclesiastes, and maybe you're asking the question, why? Does this passage really intend to inform us about politics primarily? Is that the goal of this passage? The answer, I believe, is no. You see, the context of this passage, that backdrop of uh, the political arena, is intending to give us really two different extremes. And, and by the way, remember that at the very beginning of this book, um, the person writing it identifies themselves as a preacher. If you know anything about preachers, their love language is hyperbole, okay? They speak in extremes, right? You know, you've been sitting here long enough listening to me. It's part of the way, listen, through rhetoric and communication to emphasize a point, but it's profoundly helpful, especially when you're trying to capture the whole gamut of humanity. And so here, here's what you need to see. Listen, the reason he keeps going back to kings and servants, those who are rich and those who are poor, is because he is trying to paint all of us in the same way. And what he's telling us, listen, is it doesn't matter your position in life. What matters is the condition of your heart. 
You could be rich. You could have the position of a king with all the power and authority you want, and you can still be a fool. You could still destroy your life. You could have everything in this life, and you could still end up a complete disaster. And listen, here's the good news. You could have nothing in this life. You could have no position. You could have no authority. You can have no power, and yet you can still have wisdom and find a good and pleasing life to the Lord. And so what he does here is so incredibly helpful. He captures all of us. And in a phrase, here's what the preacher says to us through his word. He says this. Listen, it's it's really simple this morning. You want the main heart of this passage? Here's what I'm proposing to you. Here's what the preacher is saying to you. Listen, don't be a fool. Wise up. Be wise. Be wise. Don't be a fool. Don't destroy your life. Have a life that you can actually enjoy and that is pleasing not only to you but to the Lord. The question then is how do we do this? That's what he draws out for us in this entire chapter through all of these Proverbs. He gives us essentially five ways in which we can wise up. And here's the first one that he gives us in verses 1 through 3. He says this, refine your character. You want a life of wisdom? You want a life that leads to blessing regardless of your position in life? Listen, it's all about you refining your character. You'll notice that he he uses these really fascinating kind of illustrations to pound these points home. And at the beginning, he he says these words, listen, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You can kind of get the sense of what he's saying there. He reminds us, listen, that you can have a life that is filled with many good things. You can even have a life that's filled with wisdom, but all it takes is one small mistake to ruin the whole thing. The illustration of a perfumer's ointment is powerful. You see, it pictures a life that that seems to have a sweet aroma I mean, a perfumer's ointment, you can see the volume of this ointment is part of the picture here. A large amount to offer up that looks good, it smells good, it is appreciated, it is valued. But all that's necessary to ruin what seems so beautiful and precious is for one little fly, one little bug to get into the mix of all of that and all is forgotten. Everything is destroyed. The whole thing's got to be poured out into the mud. We have sayings like this in, in our culture, right? The contemporary kind of analogy that we use is, is one, for example, one rotten apple spoils the whole bushel, right? Or, or as you can see him kind of phrasing it here, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You might think of it like this, an ounce of folly outweighs a pound of wisdom, I love what Benjamin Franklin says. It'll be on the screen behind me. He says these words. He says this, it takes many good deeds to build a good reputation and only one bad one to lose it. Warren Buffett said this. He said, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do things differently. Well, how many people have a life that is to be valued and respected and appreciated And then in one stupid, small, life-changing decision, all of their life is now known not for the good that they've done, not for the wisdom that they exhibit at points in their life, but for that one small, bad decision. That's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is warning us about. And you see, the key to making sure that you don't end up as a statistic 
as a life that has been utterly destroyed by one bad decision, one ultimately tragic decision, is to have a life that is filled with character, character that is refined, that holds you firm, that prevents you from taking that step off the cliff and destroying your life. In one sense, listen, this is a a warning to our culture that is obsessed with reputation. We have a culture that loves reputation above all else. We love the way people think of us. We want to paint ourselves in ways that people respect us and appreciate us, that they think highly of us. And here, really what the preacher is telling us to do is to be more concerned about your character than your reputation. See, well, what's the difference between reputation and character ultimately? Listen, here, here it is right here. Reputation is what others think of you. Character is what God knows of you. Reputation, listen, is precious, make no mistake about it, but character is priceless. And look what he says in verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right. I love that word inclines. You see this? The idea of character there is a life that, that has built up the muscle of wisdom. So the wise person constantly excuse me, is working out the muscle of wisdom in all the little details and small areas of life. They're trying to practice wisdom so that in the major areas of life, wisdom is what rules. And the wise person's heart constantly inclines them to the right. You see, that it keeps pulling them to the right, to what is right and true and wise. Now, it's interesting here, when we think of the right and the left, where do your mind, what does your mind instantly go to? politics. That's right. The left is sinful. The right is godly. I'm just kidding. He's not talking here about uh, politics, okay? He's talking about morality. Uh, Morality here is, is the point. It's the picture that's being painted. You see, going to the right was often the place of honor and, and praise. It was the place of the morally upright. The left was the place of the wicked and the foolish and the sinful. It's just this picture, this painting. But by the way, Jesus uses this analogy when he talks about, in the end times, separating the sheep and the goats, doesn't he? Who goes to the right? The sheep. Who goes to the left? The goats. Just catch this. Listen, the right was that place of honor, of moral goodness, of character, and of integrity. And the left is the place of moral perversity and ineptness. By the way, sin, A.W. Tozer says this really, really helpfully. He says, sin is basically an act of moral folly, and the greater the folly, the greater the fool. The heart of the wise inclines to the right. They focus on character. They focus on righteousness. They focus on godliness. They focus on holiness. The person who is the fool has their heart obsessing about sin and selfishness and wickedness. They care nothing about God and about his holiness. This all, by the way, begins in the heart. The disposition of your heart, the condition of your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says it like this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the wellspring of life. Character is made up of a bunch of little decisions. And so some of us in here need to be 
kind of maybe helpfully reminded of this because we've been living our lives and not, being, uh, not paying attention to the little things. We, we think that character is really about the big decisions, failing to realize that the big decisions will ultimately be influenced by a life that is made up of a bunch of little decisions. Some of you in here haven't been paying attention to the details at all, and, and you've kind of been skating through your life, and you've been looking at, at your life and thinking, you know what, these little things, these little sins, these little problems, they don't matter very much. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a couple little lies. It's just a little bit of anger. It's just one little glance now and again. And for some of you, you think that that's okay, but what you don't realize is that you're eroding your conscience and you're eroding your character so that, listen, ultimately, if you're not careful, when you're faced with something more tempting, when you're faced with something that might put you over the edge, because you haven't shored up those little areas of your life, you're going to be far more inclined to step over that cliff and do some serious damage. It's a call that's pulling us back to now pay attention to the smaller areas of our life, those harmless habits that we think are not that important. Solomon reminds us in this book and in the book that follows us in Song of Solomon 2.15, listen to what he says. He said this, he says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. I love that picture. Listen, it's the little foxes that creep in and spoil the vineyard. And if we're not careful to catch them, to tame them, to kick them out of the garden, listen, they're gonna end up devouring the whole thing. Let me encourage you to pay close attention to the details of your life. That's where character is fashioned. You know, I've been thinking a little bit about this. There's lots of examples of this in the scriptures, but one of the, the men of character that is exemplified in the scriptures is Daniel. Now, I love Daniel because Daniel is also defined as being one of the wisest people in all the, the scriptures. He is so wise, he is brought in as a slave and he rises to the ranks of being an official in a pagan foreign land. But one of the, the things that's said about him was, is so helpful when it comes to seeing his character and seeing how the details matter. It's been a scripture that I've been, I've been meditating on for the last couple of weeks and just praying this over my own heart and praying this for, for you as our church family. But you know the story of Daniel when, when they're trying to trap him, when they're trying, you know, all of the, the evil officials are trying to get at him. One of the things that's said about Daniel is this, it says this, that the, the evil officials, they gather together, they're trying to go at Daniel and they're trying to find holes in his character and listen to what they say as they gather together to discuss how to take Daniel down. They say this, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his Lord. Listen to what this means, okay? These guys are looking at Daniel's life under a microscope, right? They are zooming in on every area of his life and they can't find anything that's wrong with his life so that they might poke holes and that he might be slandered before the king. Instead, the only thing that they could possibly find wrong with him is that he loves the law of his God too much. His life, in other words, listen, is so conformed to the law of God. What they have to do is despise the law of God and make the law of God the problem so that they can trap Daniel. Listen, how awesome would it be if our lives in every detail were so conformed to the law of God that when people looked at us and our character, the only flaw they could find in us is that our lives align too closely to the word of God. 
You want to shore up your life. You want to pay attention to the details. You want to fashion character. Here's the answer. You say, how do I do that? Listen, get your face in the word of God. Look at the word of God. Inspect the word of God. Let it inspect you. And then repent of every area of your life that isn't in line so that God can transform you by his word and by his spirit so that your character looks more and more like the character of the all-wise one, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. The second thing he pulls out here is that we are to keep our cool in verses four through seven. Now, I want you to notice that the verse three reminds us that the fool, he, he lacks so much sense, he walks out into the street and everybody knows that he's a fool. Listen, so in the same way that people should know how wise you are, they so quickly can diagnose you as a fool as well. And one of the ways that we can be diagnosed as a fool is by how uh, we handle our emotions, how we kind of keep our control, control of our emotions, or how quickly we fly off the handle and lose control of our emotions. And here he talks about this in verses four through seven. Here's what he says. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to rest. Speaking uh, of being under serious pressure here, Again, the, the backdrop of the political context, the political arena, uh, uh, and, and it's helpful just to be reminded that the political context of the nation of Israel um, was a monarchy. And so kingship was a very real thing. And here, the picture seems to be of that of a foolish ruler, that of an angry king, and a counselor who is in his presence, who is obviously a much lower in stature, is put in this place where he has to deal with the, the wrath of the king, and so now he's left wondering what in the world he should do. How should he respond? And what's very clear here is that the ruler's wrath, this king's wrath, is unfounded. It's irrational. It's ungodly. It's uncalled for, and you've been put in that position, I'm sure, just like I have, when somebody is going off the rails on you, and, and it is completely unfounded. They're the one in sin, they're the one with the problem, and yet here you are, faced with this immense pressure, and you feel your blood beginning to boil, right? You feel the tension rising, and all of a sudden, you're about to just blurt something out in response out of your anger and frustration. But you see, this text tells us the fool responds with emotion. What do you do when somebody, especially in a position of authority over you, is angry with you? I mean, maybe you've had a boss that lashes out to you regularly. Maybe you have a spouse that is ungodly in their responses to you often, and their response is, is to be angry with you in an unfounded way. How do you respond? Oftentimes, listen, we're tended, we tend to face that kind of anger with an either fight or flight response, don't we? Like, we dig our heels in, we get ready to fight, or we're just going to walk away. There is a time to walk away. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 3, Solomon has already made that very clear to us. But here's what you need to hear from this text. There is a time to stay put. There is a time to keep your cool. Proverbs 15, verse 1 in a very similar way, says these words. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's wisdom. 
That's, that's incredibly helpful wisdom. A little bit of wisdom can calm a whole lot of anger. Keep your cool in the face of somebody who is angry with you. Listen, there's a great principle at work here, okay? Some of you, you need to hear this. I mean, maybe your marriage is, you're faced with this constant battle with your spouse and every, you know, anger here, anger there. Listen, do you want to know what's worse than one angry person? Two angry people. It's so unhelpful. And so if one person, listen, in the midst of the fight can just be calm and rational and listen and trust themselves to the Lord, even where it's not fair, even where it's not right, how quickly situations might be uh, diffused. Verses 5 through 7 kind of expands on this idea of this unrighteous anger from this ruler But he paints this interesting picture again. He says this, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. He says, Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. In essence, what he's saying is like, look at things in this life are oftentimes not the way they should be. They're upside down. They're, they're turned around. It's, it's not okay for a king and a person, a position, somebody in a position of power and authority to abuse that power, to use it recklessly, to hurt those underneath them. That's not okay. That's not the way it's supposed to be. He paints this picture of disorder. That's, that's the point there. Things are in disarray. They're disordered. And really what he describes for us is the world that we live in under the sun. We live in this world that is broken, it's disordered, it's not the way it's supposed to be. You see, when God created the world, he created it like himself with order, with structure, with intentionality. There was a flow and a right way that things were supposed to be operating. But all of a sudden, sin invades the created order and what we have is chaos. We have disorder. Things no longer function the way they're supposed to. And here, it's interesting that the disorder he scribes is uh, from the foolish ruler. He is the one who has flipped this order in this picture. He's the one here who is doing the damage. We don't have to go very far to see that this was not just true in Solomon's time, right? That those in positions of power oftentimes will use it to their own advantage, will use it to hurt others. All we got to do is watch the news for five minutes. This foolish ruler here has flipped the order upside down, but it reminds us too, by the way, that there was a a foolish ruler who began this whole process of flipping this world upside down, and his name was Adam. Adam was the first king. He was the king appointed by God. He was supposed to build his life upon the rock of God's word. He was supposed to be the wise king who, who did the will of the Father in every regard. And yet what we saw is he flipped the order upside down. He said, look, I know it's supposed to be God and then man, but I'm going to make it man and then God. I know it's supposed to be righteousness over wickedness, but I'm going to flip that upside down. Instead, it's going to be wickedness over righteousness. He turned his back on God, and as a result, the whole world has been flipped upside down. We are left now in this confusing, upside-down existence, life under the sun, where we see plenty of injustice, where we are sinned against and hurt by others, where we can say definitively that life is not fair. But the question remains, how do we respond to this? The answer from 
The preacher of Ecclesiastes, who was a king himself, if it is Solomon, is to simply keep your cool. James um, helps us with this. Let me just read this to you. In James 1, 19 through 21, listen to what James says. Again, it's kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. He says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I love how he comes back to the the power of the word of God in your life. You want to make sure your anger doesn't control you. You want to make sure your words don't get you into trouble. Make sure the word of God controls you. Be hearers of the word, be doers of the word as well. Forget your words in the moments of anger and instead, listen, this is really helpful, replace them with God's words. For some of you who maybe struggle specifically with anger and lashing out in rage, it would be helpful for you to memorize um, not only this passage here, but memorize James 1, 19 through 21, where it reminds us that the anger of God does not produce the righteousness of man. And if your goal, listen, here's, here's how you kind of move forward in this. When you are faced with this kind of conflict, when you are faced with somebody who is exercising power and control over you in an unhealthy way, and your frustration is mounting, listen, you need to remember that you exist not to defend your glory and honor, but to defend God's honor and glory. And the way you do that in these moments is to submit yourself to the word of God. Let it reign and rule over your heart and over your life. Allow it to help you navigate the dangers that are present from others. But really, we need to consider, as we've navigated the dangers from others, how we navigate the dangers that we often present to ourselves. Listen, it's one thing to face problems from people outside of us. It's a whole other thing to face the problems that are within us. And and as I've said many times before, the greatest enemy you face is not outside of you, it's within you. And here in verses 8 through 11, he begins to tackle that in a a variety of ways with a variety of images. Here's what he says in verses 8 and following. He says, and he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt... And one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Four pictures that are given that really illustrate four warnings for us. They overlap and they're deeply connected. In many ways, you can just pair them up together, two and two. You see, the point of this, though, is that we often are guilty of foolishness because of our own mistakes. We fail to see what we need to see, and so we end up wandering into foolishness without thinking. These illustrations are really warnings to pay close attention to ourselves and to to begin to root out foolishness that may exist there. And you'll notice the first two illustrations he gives, this idea of a pit and digging a pit and falling into it, and a serpent um, that will bite you as you break through a wall. You say, well, what, what's happening there? Well, there's a couple different ways to maybe understand this. You see, a pit was often dug as a trap for animals, and it was covered with a net, and then it was camouflaged, and you can kind of see the picture there that if you dug this pit with, with maybe good intentions to trap an animal, but you forgot about it and weren't paying close attention, I mean, you could end up trapping yourself. The same idea is maybe present with this idea of the snakes in a wall. You see, walls were built around orchards. Even today in um, modern uh, day Israel, you can go around and you can see walls that are built around orchards and vineyards and things like that. And 
Part of the purpose is to keep other people out. But what would happen is kind of in the cracks and crevices of the wall, um, snakes would find themselves kind of hiding in there and, and making little layers and homes in there. And if you ended up trying to break through a wall without thinking carefully, it's possible that you would be bitten by a, a poisonous snake. That's one possible way of understanding this. So in other words, what you see here is maybe some unintentional injuries to self. You're not thinking very well. But there's another way to understand this that maybe makes a little bit more sense and captures a, a bit more of a deliberate and intentional kind of motivation behind this. You see, oftentimes the scriptures talk about pits that were dug to trap other people. They were dug in wickedness, with wicked motivation to hurt others, to harm others, to destroy others. It's very clear, too, that if you're digging through a wall, there's a good chance you don't got great intentions. A thief would often dig through a, a mud wall, try to break into somebody's home and steal their possessions, and maybe, you know, mud walls, you know, that were, had stones inside, and maybe the idea here there is, then is this, listen, that if your intention is to live a life of wickedness and foolishness, you better be careful, it may not pay off like you think it will. I think that's probably more likely here. In other, this, in other, in other words, excuse me, this is warning us against intentional, willful sin, this isn't talking about accidental sin or, or sins that are unknown. This is that willful, intentional, you are going after sin. And you listen, if you're in here today and you are pursuing sin and you know you're pursuing sin, the warning is specifically for you. You cannot play with sin and not get hurt by sin. So often we, just, you know, we don't experience the consequences instantaneously for our sin, and so we keep pressing into sin. And here again, as he's warned us before, the call here is to stop with persistent, willful sin. This is a New Testament principle as well. This is why we read um, in, in our communion time, I, I try and warn you and remind you of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. I had somebody come up to me a few weeks ago um, when we did communion who was visiting our church, and he, and he said to me, this, he said, I never heard um, that kind of a warning that you gave to not take this if you're living in willful sin. He's like, I've, I've gone to lots of church. I've never heard that before. Can you show me where that is? And I had to open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I walked him through um, the, the call of Scripture, listen, to examine the body, to look at the gospel, to look at the body of Christ, to think about, listen, part of this is so helpful, listen, to look at Christ. Christ and to see, listen, what Christ suffered for sin. You realize in communion, it's not just about examining your body. It's not just about examining your life. You can only examine your life effectively if it's examined in the light of the body of Jesus Christ. Because when you look at Jesus and you see him suffering on the cross and you realize that it was your sin that held him there, all of a sudden your intentional pursuit of sin becomes that much more heinous in your sight, or at least it should. When you realize the cost of your sin, right? Grace, listen, is a beautiful gift of God that is in one sense free and yet in a whole other sense it is deeply costly. And the call of Scripture is, is simply this, especially, listen, as we look at Christ, is to remember, listen, the cost that was paid for our sin, and it is to pull us away from intentional sin, to have us confessing our sin, and the consequences of living in persistent sin and coming to the Lord's table is this, that some of you are sick and even dying. So what if it's not willful? What if it's, what, what if it's a sin that's hidden to me that I'm, I'm not sure is there? I think that's more the sense of verses 9 um, and following, he says, this, he who quarries stones is hurt by them, 
and he who splits logs is endangered by them. You can see the, the picture here of someone who's going to the mines and has just simply become lazy. They're not paying attention. Uh, or somebody who's chopping wood and hasn't sharpened the axe properly like they should and instead is flailing away at a piece of wood and more inclined to injure themselves. Danger is always present. Sometimes our sin is unknown to us. Sometimes our sin is just a result of thoughtlessness, of not paying close enough attention. Verses 10 and 11 seem to indicate the idea of the wisdom of preparation. You say, how do I avoid this? Well, I think the call here in 10 and 11 is simply this. Listen, sharpen, sharpen the edge of the, the axe. <laughs> right? The principle there, we, we say it like this, work smarter, not harder. I mean, why would you hurt yourself? Why would you expend more energy and effort? Why would you do so much damage to yourself if you can prevent it by simply taking a little bit of time, a little bit of preparation, a little bit of training, a little bit of sharpening the edge of the axe, and you can just cut cleanly through the piece of wood? You see, a little bit of wisdom helps somebody succeed. A little bit of foolishness can do such great damage. And an analogy here that's obviously so common to all of us, if the serpent bites, serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charm. If I had a dollar every time I got bit by a snake because I didn't charm it properly. But again, you can see the same principle at work, can't you? Right? They're, they're, they're just playing around with the snake. They're supposed to train the snake and, and charm the snake. But if you rush too quickly, if you don't do the proper training, then you're going to end up being bitten by a poisonous snake. We say something like this, too, that, you know, if we fail to prepare, we need to prepare to fail. Here, wisdom is compared to sharpening a blade and training a snake. I love this idea of training and preparation. It's, it's so vital to succeed in all areas of life. And by the way, the, the wisdom that's offered here will help you in so many areas of your life, um, physically, uh, career-wise, family-wise, but most importantly, spiritually. I'm a big fan of... Uh, of Navy SEALs. I have a high degree of respect for Navy SEALs. I've watched all kind of documentaries on them. I've watched, that you can kind of watch these videos for those of you who are interested, all five of you, uh, about the classes that they go through, the training that they go through. And, uh, and, and it's just so fascinating to watch all of these men who in everyday life, they would put all of us to shame in terms of their physical prowess, their strength, their mental capacity, and their, their, their stamina, their perseverance. And yet watching grown men as they're put through the rigors of training and preparation to determine whether or not they're fit to be called a Navy SEAL, and even to begin that training process, they go through what's called Hell Week, and the vast majority of these men end up, listen, there's a walk of shame when you can't take any more, and you need to drop out. You have to walk out to the middle of the yard and ring a bell. But those who make it are of a whole other caliber, and they have all kinds of helpful slogans and sayings in the, the Navy SEALs that apply not just to, to war and strategy, um, but also just to life in general. I love one of the slogans they have. It says this, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. It's, it's a great principle when you think about it. You see, the simple phrase was a reminder that in the heat of battle, there is a great urgency for speed. You've got to move quickly. You've got to go fast. But we all know this in our lives, right? Sometimes we're inclined to move so fast, it ends up hurting us in the long run. It becomes dangerous. We make incredibly dangerous mistakes. 
But when you move so fast that you make mistakes, it's really not fast at all. That's part of the point. And the key is to move slow enough to ensure that everything works smoothly and that's how you end up going fast. That's the principle kind of at work here in this text. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, you have to take some time to prepare, to go slow enough at the beginning to get the fundamentals right, to train smart and to train hard so that under pressure, listen, wisdom will rule in your life. If you try to move too quickly in this life, if you try to go well beyond yourself too quickly, you're going to end up in big trouble. This is something that we're, we're kind of trying to get after in our small group ministry, by the way, just as a practical application. We are kind of revamping our approach to small groups right now, where we're going back to some of the fundamental aspects of the Christian life. Um, reading the scriptures well, uh, praying well, evangelizing well, just the basics. Uh, there's an old famous saying, Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, every year he'd start off training camp with all of these professional football players. He would stand in front of the men, he'd give a speech, and he'd hold up a football, and he'd say, gentlemen, this is a football. Like, yeah, we know we're professionals. But, but his point was this, you see, we got to stick with the fundamentals. If we don't get the fundamentals right, everything else will collapse under the weight of the pressure. When the pressure's on in the midst of the playoffs, if you don't have the fundamentals nailed down, you will not respond properly and you will end up hurting yourself. Listen, listen, church, the same is true in the Christian life. If you don't nail down the fundamentals, if you don't know what you're doing at the most foundational levels, you will not survive and thrive in the Christian life. You won't. When Satan attacks, when the pressure mounts, when temptation is facing you, you will crumble. But where you get the fundamentals nailed down, where you are devoted to them like you are devoted to nothing else, listen, you will thrive with strength and power. If we are wise, therefore, we are preparing and training, and we're going back to the basics and the fundamentals, and we're making sure that they're tightened up and nailed down, and we're not leaving them. Living wisely may take more time at the beginning, but it saves time and gets you further in the long run. Watch your step. Fourth, notice this. He says this, hold your tongue. You want to wise up, then you need to learn to hold your tongue. You don't need to elbow your spouse right now, okay? This is maybe for you today. The call here is really to choose our words wisely, and the picture that's painted is the picture of a babbling fool, somebody who just loves to talk. Talk, 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 talk. Look at verse 12 with me. It says this, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, and he does not know the way to the city. This is a rambling, bumbling fool. This is a call to choose our words wisely, to think carefully about what we are about to say, especially in moments 
of pressure, but just in general in life. You see, if you don't have anything nice to say, as the saying goes, you need to learn to not say anything at all. That saying should be applied to not just having nothing nice to say, sometimes it's just better to say nothing at all. Wise words, as the the preacher says, can win you great favor. You can grow your influence in people's lives with wisdom, with wise words, but you can lose your influence in others' lives simply by opening your mouth. The lips of a fool consume them, it says. It, It eats them up. It destroys their life. It destroys their reputation. It destroys their character. There are some of us in here, and you know who you are. Maybe you don't, and that's part of the problem, who just can't keep your mouth shut. Yeah, you just feel the need to open. And, and if there's nobody in here, because maybe, maybe that's true, maybe none of you have this problem, but you know somebody, don't you, who just can't keep their mouth shut? They just have to keep talking. They just, they just think they know everything. And the word of God has a lot to say in the book of Proverbs, a ton of wisdom. Listen to Proverbs 18, verse 7. It says this, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. And this person is so foolish. They speak so much foolishness. It actually, it devolves into utter madness. You ever talk to somebody like that where it starts off and you're just like, that sounds really, really foolish. And then pretty much, they they keep talking pretty much like, that's about the craziest thing I've ever said. This is crazy talk. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 15, he describes what I think can be described in, in kind of modern day language as the village idiot. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Now, I, don't, I, I read that verse, that the, the toil of a fool wearies him, and all I could think of was that the, the author must have made a mistake. The toil of a fool wearies him? How about the people who've got to listen to him? It is exhausting listening to somebody spout foolishness over and over and on and on again. And part of the point here is this, that this person is so foolish, like they, they, they claim to know so much, even, even the future, right? They're, they're trying to wax eloquently about issues in life, and the, and the part of the problem is, is they can't even tell you the directions into the city. That's how dumb they are. Like they don't know what they're talking about. That's another way of saying it. They just have no idea what they're talking about. And if you follow their directions and instruction, you'll be just as lost as they are. wearies himself. It's exhausting. I think this is maybe helpful. Listen, it's exhausting trying to be a know-it-all, isn't it? It's exhausting trying to keep up that reputation. And if you didn't realize that by now, you were exhausting everybody else around you, and that may be one of the reasons why you have a hard time keeping friends. (laughs) I love what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, it's better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And if you allow me to babble on for just a little bit longer, you should ask this question, how can I grow in this? How can I make sure this isn't me? I think just simply put, the wise person learns to talk less and listen more. That's not, the, that's not to say there's not a right place to, to speak, and that's not to say that you uh, can't give your perspective and opinion, but the wise person learns to talk less and listen more. For some of you, you need some real help with this, and so here's what you need to learn to do in your conversations and your relationships with others. Learn to simply ask questions and then keep your mouth shut. 
Ask questions. Let other people talk. Get to know others. You see, the person who talks a lot and talks over others and interrupts others is the person, listen, who even though they may not realize it, is demonstrating that they don't care about others. Sometimes the best thing that you can say is, I don't know. Sometimes the best thing you can do is simply stop talking. He said, Ian, can you just follow your own advice now? Okay, last point, all right? You want to wise up? Here's what you need to do. Choose your king. Choose your king. He goes back into the political arena once more, and here's what he says. He says, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince's feast in the morning. Happier are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Here he just gives a really quick contrast between good kings and bad kings. Good kings are those who are diligent and disciplined and they seek the good of the people that they lead. Bad kings are described as those who are lazy and gluttonous. They live for the moment. They live for themselves. They're selfish. And the picture here is of a national disaster that's caused by a foolish king, a lazy king, an immature king. In fact, he, he tells us that it is not good to have a king um, who is a servant or a child, which is a unique way of, of kind of framing this. But if you recall the history of Israel, there are often times where a child became a king, and the vast majority of the time it ended up, ended up disastrously, other than uh, one or two occasions. But what's really fascinating is that if this is written by Solomon, which I believe it was, When he was first anointed as king, he realized his own inadequacy and insufficiency, and he actually approached God in prayer, and he says something very fascinating as he sees God for wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, it's on the screen behind me. Listen to what he says. He says, and now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And here in humility, he recognizes, listen, his own insufficiency. He approaches God with humility. And here, this bad king that's described, the, the lack of wisdom of this king shows up in the behavior of all those who serve in his regime, the behavior of the princes. Instead, again, of working conscientiously for the good of the nation, the princes, like the fools, live only for themselves even to the hurt and destruction of those they lead. Verse 19 emphasizes this, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. That's the slogan of this kind of a bad leadership, bad governance. In many ways, it's the slogan of the culture we live in. And in verse 20, it paints this picture of how we are to respond and warns us again of how 
not to respond. Listen, it's possible to look at our world and the governance and the leadership and the positions of authority that are being abused. It's possible, again, to respond in frustration and anger. And if we're not careful, if we're not wise, something very small, opening our lips even just a little bit, might be our own downfall. It was a deadly thing, listen, to critique the king, to complain about the king in the ancient world. It could cost you your life. And here, I love this, the, the imagery here is of the small bird who might inform the king, right? You think you're in safety, speaking your mind to those around you, and all of a sudden you're being called into the presence of the king to answer for the very words you've spoken. You will be condemned by your own words. It's amazing to me, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We still have the phrase, a little birdie told me. <laughs> Listen, be wise and survive. Be careful that you aren't caught speaking poorly of the king. It won't end well. But ultimately here, I think there's a call for us to consider our king. There is a sense in which this person who critiques the king is saying, I don't want this king. This king isn't my king. I will not serve this king. I will simply complain about this king. And certainly there may be some warrant in that, especially where there's a bad king. But allow me to take this forward a little bit and create a bit of an analogy here. See, this world that we live in is filled with rulers, with governance, with people who hurt and abuse those that they rule. They use their power for their own selfish gain, for their own advancement. The truth is, though, listen, that every one of us is serving a king and living for a kingdom. But biblically speaking, there are only two kingdoms that ultimately matter. There is the kingdom of this world, It's referred to in Scripture as the domain of darkness. It's a kingdom that is ruled by Satan, the great usurper. He is called the prince of the power of the air. He is called the ruler of this world. It is a kingdom that if you choose to live in, and it is a king if you choose to serve, that wants to trap you. Wants to trap you and to hold you and to enslave you and to keep you in the sinful pleasures and pursuits of this kingdom, of this world. It wants to keep you living life under the sun, disconnected from God, who made you to know Him and to love Him. It's even possible that some, even in here, Christians, those who say that they are followers of Jesus Christ, have actually become so enamored with this kingdom that they have built their lives, their hopes, and their dreams upon it. They have found their identity in it. They are pursuing it with so much vigor that it is consuming them. It's possible maybe that you have become like the kingdom that you have immersed yourself in. You are consumed with self. You're consumed with luxury, with entertainment. You're consumed with indulgence, with money, and with possessions, with power and prestige. All the things that this kingdom, the kingdom of this earth, value. It's the kingdom of darkness where sin and selfishness reign. And it's possible that you are sitting in here and you are blinded from seeing the foolishness of your pursuits. And you need to hear these words, woe to you if this is your king and your kingdom. But then there is the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is taught about throughout all of scriptures from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Revelation where King Jesus rules and reigns with righteousness, with truth. 
It's a kingdom that is invading currently the domain of darkness, as Paul says in Colossians 1, that is going after the souls of those who have been trapped in the domain of darkness and is rescuing them and ransoming them and redeeming them and bringing them over into the kingdom of his, God's beloved son. Wisdom says choose this king and his kingdom. Wisdom says be careful that you aren't caught in the end speaking poorly of this king and his kingdom. Wisdom says to you it won't end well if you stand before King Jesus and he has seen because he sees and knows all that not only with your lips but in your heart you despised him. You despised his kingdom. You wanted nothing to do with him because you will hear from that king what you desperately do not want to hear. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. I never knew you. You see, this text and every other text points us forward to Jesus and reminds us, listen, that while the kingdoms of this world are frail and sinful, there is a king who is coming, a king who has already come. A king who has come to ransom us from the kingdom of this world by giving his life on the cross, by dying for the sin that enslaves us and traps us and holds us. And he calls everyone everywhere to turn and look to the king, to repent of sins, to believe that he has paid for them all in full, to believe that he has risen from the grave, to believe that he offers life and the hope of the kingdom that is to come to all who bow the knee and surrender now. So the call goes out to all the world, but it goes out to you and me once more again in this place this morning. Choose your king. Choose wisely. For the king you choose to serve will ultimately destroy you or save you. This choice will prove if you are wise or foolish in the end, and that, dear friends, is the wisdom and folly that will matter most. Happy are you when your king is the son of nobility. Our king Listen, church, King Jesus is the Son of God. There is no greater nobility than that. Amen? He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is crowned with majesty, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I'm going to invite you to bow with me in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you, God, that you have loved us, that you have loved your own glory, and that, God, you have called a people out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, who delight in you, who delight in giving you all of the glory, all of the praise, and all of the honor. Father, we pray that in this place this morning, God, that we would be reminded that, Lord, it is foolishness to live for the kingdoms of this world. It is foolishness, Lord, to put our hopes and dreams and identity in the kingdom of this world, in the pursuits of the things of this life, the things below, instead of the things that are above, where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. Father, we pray that you would draw, incline our hearts to the right. Father, it is no mistake that your word tells us that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. The place of righteousness, of dignity, of honor, of power, and of authority. 
And Father, we want our lives and our lips to declare our allegiance to you, our King of kings and Lord of lords. So Father, would you allow us even now, Lord, to write our hearts before you. Father, wherever there has been sin, wherever there has been pursuit of the kingdoms of this world, God, would you, God, cause our hearts to repent, to come back to you, our good and faithful King. And Father, would it be our greatest delight and desire in this place to sing of you, our great King, to crown you with many crowns, to delight, Lord, not only in your kingdom that has come in part, but in your kingdom that will come in full when you return. Father, give us a longing for that day, and until that day comes, give us a desire to serve you with all of our heart, with all of our might. With everything we are, we bow our knee to you, King Jesus, and we pray that you would receive all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.